0: It was June of 2014 when fighters of the Islamic State in the Levant surrounded and then stormed the northern Iraqi city of Mosul. And as the Iraqi security forces fled over six days, the Islamic State took control over the entire bureaucracy, the security, the educational systems, indeed the culture of the city Itself and everything began to change. There were the rules and the regulations and the restrictions. The restrictions that women had to wear full body hijab with only their eyes showing. The prohibition on televisions upon pain of death as everybody frantically tried to hide or bury the television set that was their connection to the outside world. The prohibition on the internet. The prohibition on alcohol the prohibition on smoking for which you could be flogged or put to death, the prohibition on music, the prohibition on dancing, the prohibition on Western education as the schools were closed and then reopened as madrasas teaching only the Quran and jihad, the prohibition on men shaving their facial hair, the prohibition on overly Western clothing styles, the focus on externals, a zeal for God's holiness, a zeal for the righteousness of God, a zeal that we would be a godly, holy, and righteous city reflecting the law of the one God, all joined together with absolute cruelty and a lack of empathy and a lack of grace as gay men were thrown off the top of tall buildings to the applause of crowds Below. Sometime after that, a man approaches an office in Baghdad, the capital. It's the office of a pastor, a Christian pastor named Yosef. And Yosef invites in this visitor and pauses for a moment as they sit down. He hears this man's story of life in Mosul after the, with, under the crushing rules of the religious scholars the Christians and the Yazidis who had been run out or put to death, their homes with inns on the doors taken over by Yahadis, by soldiers, their possessions confiscated, stories of women draped in in black and other women sold as sex slaves, beaten or humiliated, schools with their extremist ideology, adulterers being executed in the street, all in the name of the law of God. It's legalism, a focus on law rather than love, a focus on what we do rather than those with whom we're in relationship, be it God or neighbor. All of us here are are legalists, whether we're recovering legalists or not. And this church has tended to be something of of a hospital for those who have been burned or bruised by toxic experiences in churches. Jesus lived and he preached in a sea of religious legalism. As we look to him, what perspective can we gain? We're going to look at a passage in which Jesus addresses the legalism of religious people. And he's really addressing our legalism, whether you're religious or not, because it takes on 31 different flavors. But we're going to look at Matthew chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 1 and go through verse 28. If you want to look in your pew Bible, we're on page 1521. Uh, This is the gospel of Christ, Matthew chapter 15. Then some Pharisees. Those are the religious scholars. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law, that's God's law, came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So these were the serious ones. They were coming from Jerusalem. This wasn't your town parish pastor. This was the pope and his cardinals. You know, these are the the, the serious ones. They came from Jerusalem and asked in verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. See, Timmy, I told you. No, this is a religious thing. Uh, priests were required to ceremonially cleanse their hands before eating. They had applied it to everybody, though. Verse 3, Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. and Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Well, whatever help you might otherwise have received for me is a gift devoted to God. He's not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said, Listen and understand. What goes into a mouth doesn't make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Do you know what the Pharisees were... That that they were offended when they heard this? And he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by its roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both are going to fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands That doesn't make him unclean. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's Lebanon today. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to Jesus crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And Jesus didn't answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Lord, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came, and she knelt before Jesus. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord. She said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very power. Every one of us is legalistic about something. In their case, these particular religious scholars were legalistic about applying priestly rules about how clergy are to prepare for for meals and sacrifices and applied them to everybody else saying, now everybody has to do this. It's the tradition of our elders. They were human rules that they had applied inappropriately. They were legalistic about food, about what goes into the mouth, eating only kosher because other things will make you unclean. It'll make you dirty before God. And, and, and yet, religion comes in 31 flavors. We're all legalistic about something. So first, what is legalism? Uh, we see here examples from, from what they were doing. Legalism is adding rules beyond what God himself lays out before you. They speak in verse 9 of the tradition of the elders. So it's adding rules. It's making something a priority that maybe God isn't making as such a, such a big deal of. Uh, legalism is building a fence around the law. You know, uh, 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 you know, they were trying to protect this priestly law about hand-washing, one of the baptismoists of the, of the Old Testament, one of the many washings of the Old Testament that Hebrews speaks of. Uh, and they were trying to guard that, so that they just said, you know, somebody someday might come across a priest, and so let's just apply this to everybody so that the priests won't violate it if, if everybody obeys it. They were building a fence around the rule. They were adding rules beyond what God says. Uh, they were majoring in minors. They were, they were so concerned about washing their hands, about baptizing their hands, and yet they weren't focused on baptizing their thought life. You know, They were picking easy things, external things, because legalism is always about self-righteousness. It makes you want to look good, and these are things you can control. Nobody gets legalistic about coveting. Nobody gets legalistic about loving God with all of your heart. Nobody gets legalistic about treating your neighbor better than you would treat yourself because those things are hard. Those things are internal heart issues. We get legalistic over things we can control because we want our spirituality and our growth to be measurable. We want to be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, See, Greg, you're doing better. Last year, you gave 11% away. This year, you gave 125 That's one and a half. That's one5 off of 10. You've grown 15% in Jesus. Gosh, he's probably looking at you, Greg, saying, mm, That is my guy. He is so good. That's what we do. It's legalism. It has all sorts of different flavors, and yet fundamentally, it's, it's focused on externals. Not on the heart. And legalism, friends, is always a lower standard. Jesus here even rebukes them. They had figured out how to technically develop a rule system, a procedure and a policy for dealing with your income such that you wouldn't have to honor your father and mother. They had actually figured out a rule structure whereby you could keep more of your own money and not take care of your family with it. Jesus calls them on it. You've chosen an easy path, but it's a legalistic path, and it misses my heart. Because legalism is ultimately always ugly. When we focus on the rules, on the policy, on the procedure, and we miss the heart of what really matters. I've got a photo here of a young man. Um, This is Christopher uh, Cersei. At 6 p.m. or thereabout on May 16th, 1998, uh, 15-year-old Christopher Searcy was playing basketball with some of his buddies uh, just outside an emergency room of a Chicago hospital. And as they were playing basketball, some suspected gang members of a Latino gang approached them with the intention of roughing up and beating someone who was African-American. And in the scuffle, Christopher here was shot in the stomach. His friends panicked, but they knew they were right next to the emergency room. So they picked him up as his blood was gushing out of his abdomen. They picked him up and they carried him some 300 feet to the very base of the ramp into the entrance of the hospital. They were 35 feet from the front door when they laid Christopher down, still alive but bleeding. His friends rushed inside the emergency room to alert the hospital personnel, and yet the staff explained that they had a policy that forbade them from treating patients outside of the building. And so as Christopher lay bleeding, they got a bureaucratic explanation that the policy didn't permit it. There were two police officers in the hospital at that time, Ravenswood Hospital in Chicago. And so they intervened and tried in vain to get the emergency workers to just step outside the door to help save this young man's life, and yet they wouldn't. And by that point, ten more minutes had passed. And finally, a police commander commandeered a wheelchair. Over the objections and insistence of hospital staff, they took a wheelchair from the hospital, went 30 feet outside the door. They were reluctant to move him because they didn't know where the bullet was. They didn't know if they might rupture something. But with no other option, the police picked him up, put him in this wheelchair, and wheeled him in to the emergency room. And yet it was too late. This young man had suffered a ruptured aorta. And by the time they got him into the hospital, he was already breathing his last. Legalism. Focus on the law, but not on what the law is there to protect. The rules. So much less than what is good. So much less than what is right. So much less than what Christopher Cersei deserved in that hospital emergency room. Legalism is always ugly. So how do I know where I'm legalistic? If everyone's legalistic about something, then how do I know where my legalism lies? And for that, we can look at the Pharisees here in this passage as they interact with Jesus and get a hint for some of the questions we could ask to find out where we have become focused on law instead of on love. First thing, the disciples come to Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus, don't you know these pastors were really offended by what you said? You want to know where you're legalistic? Look where you get offended. If you get offended, listening to politics, and you get just so upset and so mad at those people in that other party who are so irrational and so wrong, that's your righteousness. That's where you're legalistic. And that's where you're not living out the gospel all you have to do is look at where it is that you get offended because offense is, is a response of anger. It means you're taking personal injury over something that's not really probably personal to you. You're getting disgusted about what somebody else is doing rather than about what you're doing. Where do you get offended? Furthermore, they come and they say to Jesus... You know, why do your disciples do this? It's almost a derogatory way that they're saying it. Not these men, not these brothers of ours, but your disciples. It's like, it's like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son going to his father and saying, look at what your son has done. Not my brother, not relationally, but uh, there's, there's a, a, a note of condescension looking down upon someone. Who do you look down upon? Is it people of a different socioeconomic bracket? People of a different educational background? People of a different race? Is it people who look different than you? People who have different political values? Do you look down upon people who have bad theology? Do you look down upon people who don't know how to manage their money as well as you do? Do you look down upon people who don't speak eloquently or use language properly? Who is it you look down upon? Who is it that you... You would just be horrified if you looked in the mirror and saw that person staring back at you. That's your legalism. That's your righteousness. And further, these pastors, these Pharisees, had gone way out of their way way to tell Jesus off. They had traveled all the way from Jerusalem. And that's a really long way. Just to tell off Jesus. Who is it that you're going to go out of your way to tell off? Are you going to go out of your way to tell off a parent who doesn't seem to be able to discipline their children the way you discipline your children? That's your legalism. That's where you're offending Jesus right now, by your judgments. That's where you've become a Pharisee. We're all legalistic somewhere. It's not a question of, you know, how dare you suggest that I'm legalistic? You're all legalistic. We're all legalistic because we're all angry about someone, somewhere, doing something that we don't approve of. Focused on law rather than on love. You can have all sorts of different legalistic self-righteousness. It can be a job righteousness because you think, hey, I work hard, and I'm upright, and I have a good work ethic, and if everybody else was like me, the world would be a better place. It could be a theological righteousness, Presbyterians, uh, because you think that because you've got really good theology and you all, hey, you know, I... I don't have, you know, a five-pointed Calvinism. I've got a 50-pointed Calvinism. Let me tell you about my theology. You know, when you start looking down upon other Christians because they maybe misunderstand the Bible or don't understand it your way, and you think you're better. It's a theological self-righteousness, but it's still a self-righteousness. It's still a legalism. You can be self-righteous about being merciful. I care more about the poor and the disadvantaged than other people. Well, God does too. Gosh, I'm so generous toward the poor. Gosh, I'm just like Jesus. It's the same thing. It can be a religious self-righteousness. I don't drink. I don't dance. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. God is so pleased by my moral convictions. I totally kiss dating goodbye. Goodbye. Or it could be a financial self-righteousness because I manage my money wisely. I stay out of debt. I'm not like those sloppy people who who get into debt and have their credit cards. I have investments. I've planned for the future. Well, that's going to be good for your finances, but is it good for your soul? When you've built your life on that platform rather than on what Jesus did for you when you were in debt and he bought you out of debt because he paid your debt for you. Be obviously a political self righteousness, though not in an election year. Um, could be righteous. You could be self righteous about not being self righteous. Uh, you know, gosh, I am so tolerant and so open-minded and so charitable towards those who disagree with me. I am so generous and so understanding. And let me tell you about those people who aren't generous, those people who are self-righteous, those horrible, awful, disgusting, devilish people who aren't tolerant like I am. It's just another form of self-righteousness. It stinks just as bad as the religious version. We're all guilty. None of us is righteous. We're just self-righteous. Jesus speaks to us, not just to the Pharisees. You know, we think today, hey, you know, I'm I'm not going to get self-righteous about food like they did. And yet, you know, let's say you go to Whole Foods. I went to Whole Foods this week, had a couple gift cards. um, And, uh, you know, coming out of Whole Foods, having that brown paper bag with the nice loop handles that holds stuff so neatly, filled with all sorts of stuff, Whole Foods kind of food. You know, I felt really clean. I felt really righteous. I felt whole. Like, this food is going to make me a Whole Food person. (laughs) But you come out of, you know... You come out of Shop and Save with your cart full of 37 plastic bags, half of them double bagged with all sorts of stuff in boxes and, you know, all sorts of gooey, weird carrageenan and all sorts of stuff in this. And, you know, you don't feel that way. Coming out of Shop and Save. It's what we do, our focus on externals that we think makes us clean. You know, I remember the time that, you know, my car got smacked really bad, um, uh, the lady, she was she was insured by Chubb, which is, uh, so she was loaded, her, her uh, it was actually, um, Westmoreland place was her address, so it was a good person to get hit by, but I remember um, but I remember, you know, when the only rental car that Enterprise had was a big old white Kia with a massive gash in the front of it and I remember, you know, you're walking around the car and they're like, okay, do you see anything wrong? Well... <laughs> There obviously this hit a backhoe at 40 miles an hour it's like it still runs we're aware of that and so am i you know i got in that and i started driving and as i was driving around i was slumping down i was like sort of getting the urban driver thing because i didn't i didn't want anybody to see me in this and i realized oh my gosh i'm self-righteous about my mini cooper how shallow is that yes yeah, some of you know i was i was diagnosed uh this past month with diabetes um which uh you know it's it's manageable and uh but you know um i had a test this week um i know middle-aged diabetic not what i want on my resume um but uh you know i i you know had a test this week to to test whether i have type 1 or type 2 diabetes because there's a type 1 that that you know usually think of that like used to call it juvenile diabetes it's like the poor helpless little kid who's 10 years old and has to give himself injections all day and he's, he's you know obviously he didn't do anything to bring this about and, uh, you know, as I'm getting this test, I'm realizing, okay, if this comes out as, like, adult onset type 1, that's going to be a lifetime of needles and insulin shots and measuring and hypoglycemia and all. It's just going to be, be awful. But, you know, that's the righteous diabetes. You know, that's where you introduce, you well, I have diabetes Type 1. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my self-righteousness is everywhere I go. I would rather have a much worse disease if it's going to make me feel more righteous. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's pathetic. So you think, okay, Greg, hey, I got a solution. Let's just get rid of morality. Let's just get rid of all rules and all regulations. Let's throw them out. And yet, what does that get you? It gets you a temporary solution to the problem of self righteousness because then there's no concept of righteousness until you start looking down upon people who are self righteous, and then you're going to actually prove that you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. But it does something else. Can you really live as if there is no good and evil? Can you really live as if there's no such thing as right and wrong? Frances Schaefer told the story a little woman walking down the street, and you see her, and she's trying to cross the street. She says, You've got three options. You can try to avoid eye contact and hope she doesn't stop and ask you for your assistance helping her get across the street. Or you can stop and you can help her across the street taking time out of your day in order to help another human being. Or thirdly, you can shove her in front of a car. Can you live as if those are equally valid options? If your soul says no, then your soul is telling you that there is right and there is wrong and there is good and there is evil. Can you really say there's nothing wrong with throwing a gay man off an 80-story building to his death while crowds cheer? Can you really say there's nothing wrong with abusing a child? Can you really say that there's nothing wrong with cruelty? It's not a question of whether it's right or wrong. We can't live as if it's not true. We know it is, and yet the problem is our own sense of right and wrong ultimately and our conscience if we're really open and honest about it tells us, I'm wrong. I'm not what I was meant to be. And so how do we then embrace a concept of justice, of goodness, of morality, of ethics, of right and wrong, and, 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 and kindness without becoming self-righteous about it? How does that happen? And for that, we're going to ask another question. Because your legalism tells you uh, what it is that you're trusting in, to validate your existence. Everyone's legalistic about something, and what you're legalistic about tells you what you're really trusting in, what your real savior functionally is. What is it that I believe makes me a valid person? Among Christians, this can look like a lot of different things. Among non-Christians, it can look like a lot of different things. But ultimately, it's looking to some moral principle, something we do. Oh, hey, hey. Am I still on? I'm still on. Uh, well, it's looking for something to make us valid. And Paul says in Colossians 2, what Rena read, that these rules are of no value in restraining sensual indulgence. Uh, you know, they're just another form of self-righteousness, another savior. You know, you've heard the story many times of the prodigal son. Really, it's the story that Jesus told in the gospel, according to Luke, of two sons. One was the son who was the hellion. He wanted mom and dad's money. He took it. He wanted his inheritance saying, Dad, I wish you were dead already. Could you just go ahead and give me my half? So he takes his half or his 30% or whatever it was, and he goes off and he totally wastes it in wild living. He's drunk all the time. He's sleeping around. He's wasting it everywhere he goes. And ultimately, he ends up helpless in a pig pen with nothing and without food. And then there's the other son. ...who was Presbyterian. And he did everything decently and in order. Some of you are Presbyterians. Not most of you, but some of you are. And it's okay, you may have been born that way... Um, but it's, you know, because you have to do everything decently and in order. Not just your theology, not just church, but your living room has to be decent and in order. Your children need to be decent and in order. You will control them to make them decent and in order. Your spouse has to be decent and in order. You're driving everybody nuts with it. You're the elder brother, just just saying. So, there are two brothers, the, 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 the one who got in trouble and the good kid. And the younger brother... The hellion comes home. He just wants to be a slave. Can you hire me? Can I be the maid? Can I clean the toilets? Whatever you need. And Dad says, "No, you're my son." And he forgives him, and he puts a ring on his finger, and he puts a cloak on his back, and he slays the fatty cap, and he has a huge party because he says this son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And there's a celebration, and the older brother, the Presbyterian, he hears all about it, and he goes to the edge. And he's on the edge of the party. He looks in. He sees what's gone. He's disgusted. Somebody comes out, explains it all to him. He refuses to go in. He dishonors his father. He shames his father. He's angry at his father. He's disgusted with his father. His father comes out to humbling himself before this this horrible brother. The, The presbyterian begs him, won't you please come in? And why will he not go into the celebration of God's kingdom? What is keeping him out? What is keeping him from grace? What is keeping him from joy? He says, All these years I slaved for you. And you never slayed a calf for me. What was keeping him from the celebration of the kingdom was his righteousness. You see, there are two ways to be damned you can be damned because of your sin, or you can be damned because of your righteousness. And among church folks, the far bigger danger is your righteousness. Because unless you will let go of it, unless you will lay it aside, unless you will put that down, you will not be able to enter the celebration. You may be in church your whole life, but in your heart, you're critical. You're angry. You're bitter. You feel like you've worked hard and other people have gotten by easy. You've become narrow and unmerciful and unloving And you will be condemned. Because you don't have Jesus. Until you have Jesus. Until you lay down your own righteousness. You won't be ready. John Piper. Back in 1982 dealt with his Baptist congregation. They had had a universal prohibition on the drinking of alcohol. Not just in the church but even in the private home. And... He was trying to convince his church to let go of this particular rule against drinking. And he explained to them the danger of legalism. He said this. He said, legalism is a more dangerous disease than alcoholism. Because legalism doesn't look like a disease. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed in the world. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient, depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives strength. Alcoholics, they don't feel welcome in the church. But legalists love to hear their morality extolled in the church. Therefore, he writes, what we need in the church is not front-end regulations to try to keep ourselves pure. We need to preach and to pray and to believe that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, quoting Paul, neither teetotalism or social drinking, neither legalism nor alcoholism is of any avail with God, but what counts is a new creation. He says the enemy is sending against us every day, the Sherman tank of the flesh, with its cannons of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And if we try to defend ourselves or our church with pea shooter regulations, we will be defeated even in our apparent success. Legalism, a peace shooter against the Sherman tank of the flesh, more dangerous a disease than alcoholism because legalism doesn't look like a disease. Friends, what are you trusting in? To validate yourself? What is it you think is actually making you someone? Everyone's legalistic about someone, something. And your legalism, can you name it? Is Jesus speaking to you right now, saying, Here is what I want you to set aside. Here is what is making you angry. This is what is making you bitter. This principle, this rule, this conviction is what's making you look down upon other people. It's destroying your family, it's destroying your relationships, it's destroying your soul. Is he speaking to you right now? What's he telling you to let go of? What's he telling you to put aside in taking up the righteousness of Christ in its place? Because this is where we end with this story of Jesus speaking and acting on the behalf of a Canaanite woman, a pagan woman. Today we would call her Lebanese from Tyre or Sidon. Because Jesus gives a righteousness that is better than any that you will ever come up with yourself. Jesus can make the unclean clean. Just look at this woman. She knows she's unrighteous. She knows she's a sinner. Jesus at first says, well, I'm focused, my ministry's focused on Jews. You're not a Jew. She says, no, I'm a dog. Dogs are unclean in Jewish law. You're not supposed to touch a dog. Good Jews aren't supposed to have them in their house. It's an unclean thing. She says, I know I'm unclean. I'm like a dog. But even dogs get the scraps that fall from their master's table. And Jesus looks upon her. There's no self-righteousness. There's no presumption. She's not claiming to be anything more than unclean. And yet Jesus looks upon her, and she calls him Lord, not just a consultant, not just an advisor, not just an inspiration, but her Lord, her master. She calls him Son of David, saying that this is the Jewish Messiah King, the Savior of all the world. She's looking to him, saying, Jesus, you are the only hope. I have the only hope. My daughter has, and Jesus looks at her, and he feels compassion for her, and he shows mercy on her, and he shows mercy on her child. Jesus, who's willing to clothe that which is unclean with his cleanness, even a Canaanite, even a dog. Paul says in Philippians 3, Oh, that I might be found in Jesus, not with a righteousness of my own derived from the law, But the righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of of the empty hands of faith, what he says in, in Romans 4 to the one who does not work, who doesn't perform, who doesn't get it right, who doesn't measure up, that's the one to whom it's reckoned as righteousness when he believes. Wait, are you telling me God would declare a Canaanite woman righteous? Romans 9, what shall we say then that Gentiles, the unclean, who didn't pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness that is by faith. She looked at Jesus and he clothed her with blessing. He clothed her with goodness. Friends, let that sink in to be clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. Jesus lived the life that we ought to have lived. He died the death that we ought to have died. And he approaches self-righteous sinners like me, self-righteous sinners like us, with the opportunity to be clothed in a righteousness not our own, to have Jesus' resume, so that everything that Jesus did is on your resume, so that the Father can look upon you and say, you fed the 5,000. You always did what pleased the Father. You fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves and some fish. That's the righteousness of Christ. The undeserved riches. Not the pea shooter of self-righteousness, but to bask in the wonder of the worthiness of Christ himself. This, friends, is the beauty of Christianity. This is the only way you're going to have a notion of right and wrong without becoming self-righteous on its behalf. If you can have a notion of right and wrong that is so high and so holy that it levels the playing field... And leaves us all as guilty sinners. No room for self-righteousness. But when you build then your life on the platform. Not of what you do for God. But what God has already done for you. When Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. When you build your platform on that. You can have a love of justice. And a love of mercy. As one who's in no position to judge anybody. Because you live by grace. And live you will. Back to that office in Baghdad as this man who has escaped from Mosul shares his story, the misery of life in that city under the Islamic State. He says, I was blind. He says, I was blind, but now I think I'm seeing, and this pastor leans in and he asks him, prompts him, how, how so? How are you seeing now? He says, I was a Muslim. I had studied the Quran, and when Islamic State came and I saw the oppression, I thought this can't be my religion, and so I began studying the Quran four hours a day, five hours a day, and I saw the source of everything I was seeing, and it wasn't beautiful to me anymore, and so I gave up faith in God. I became an atheist. I rejected it completely. I wanted nothing to do with this. And then after escaping, one day I came across a village where where there were Christians and they had a table and they were giving out Bibles. And I asked, I approached them hesitantly, can I have one of these? This is something different. And they gave me a New Testament and I took it home and I began to read it. And as I began to read it, I saw something completely different and then I saw a passage where Jesus had had approached a woman caught in adultery and was asked, will you stone this woman? And I asked myself this question. Would I stone this adulterous woman if she's violated the law of God? Would I pick up rocks and would I join in? Would I pummel her? Would I take her life? And then I read what Jesus said. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And I fell down on my knees and I cried out to heaven, This is God. Jesus is God. Only Jesus. I see him now. This is the truth. This is the real God. I must worship him. And he was baptized into Jesus, a brother in Christ, from the crushing legalism of the Islamic State to Jesus defending an adulteress From the religious legalists. Here we see the heart of Christianity, friends. Because here we see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Lord, I thank you that I do not stand before you now based on my deeds, based on my life, based on what I have done and how I've lived my life. Because if I did, Lord, I could not stand. But you have loved me. You will save even a Presbyterian. Washing us, not just of our sin, but washing us of our damnable self-righteousness and replacing that with the righteousness of Jesus and a heart of thankfulness and love. Lord, I pray that 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 gospel would sink in deeply in this place, among this people, in this city and in this world, Lord, that this gospel of Jesus would, would flood the nations as the waters cover the sea, Lord, that your name might be praised and that we might give you thanks and rejoice. Father, we consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you would preach to us the gospel and weave us together in that love and unity that comes from living our life on the platform of Christ and his grace for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. Then lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise, and praise, and that is what we do in receiving this sacrament. If you are a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or some other, we welcome you here. This is the Lord's table, and it's for all who call on his name, baptized members in good standing of any church where Jesus is held forth as Savior. If for any reason uh, you're not ready to take part in this meal, we'd still invite you to come forward and just pass by without taking the elements. We just don't want you to do anything that's not true to where you are at this point in your spiritual journey. But Jesus wants you to be able to come because he wants to be able to serve you with his mercy and compassion. For it was on that night in which he was betrayed that the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take this and eat. This is my body that's broken for you. Do this unto my remembrance.
1: Beloved, in the same way, after supper, Christ took the cup also, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Death at last has met defeat. See the ancient powers of evil in confusion and retreat. Once he died and once was buried, now he lives forevermore. Jesus Christ, the world's Redeemer, whom we worship and adore, beloved, before you is displayed that truth. We have communion with a living Savior, not a corpse in a grave, and he has redeemed us from all our sins, including our legalism. Beloved, great is the mystery of faith.
0: Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come. Again.
1: Let us keep the feast.